uh, self-righteous people like us, uh, sinners, uh, like this rich young ruler. It's a wonderful story, and, and I encourage you to follow along as uh, I read God's Word, and then as we uh, unpack it together. Rich young ruler, Luke 18, beginning at verse 18. And a ru- tell, excuse me, I'm going to begin, because uh, I think it's an important part of the text, I'm going to begin at verse 15. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed, uh, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there was no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. We're going to be focused on the first uh, verses there, 18 through 22, 18 through 22. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh God in heaven, thank you that Jesus Christ has come to rescue us and Thank you, Lord, in this text, we see a beautiful picture of that. Help us to to hear our Lord Jesus speak to our heart today, that we would respond to him in love and faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The text that we have before us this morning is a text that has been the cause of a lot of discussion and consternation uh, in the church, probably since um, the day the Gospels were first published. Uh, The the question uh, for anxious Americans particularly uh, is, uh, does Jesus really want us to sell everything we have? Uh, But this has been an issue that uh, the church, again, has has faced. The the medieval church uh, used this uh, passage uh, as a ground for requiring those who are entering the monastery, if you wanted to be a monk, uh, you needed to take a vow of poverty. Uh, the general idea was that while it is uh, wealth is not a barrier to being a normal Christian, if you really wanted to be a special Christian, if you wanted to be totally committed to Christ and, and truly follow Jesus in a radical way, then you would have to uh, sell everything you had and uh, take a vow of poverty. Well, while Jesus certainly addresses the issue of material wealth, and and we're going to be looking at that, Lord willing, the next time as as we uh, take verses 23 and following, um, 
the fact is that this text, especially the text we have here this morning, is, is not really primarily about material wealth. It's not, first of all, about what you do with money. It's, it's first of all, about what do you do with Jesus? And, and that's what Jesus is after. He's not just answering an interesting theological question, nor is he seeking to establish a moral principle regarding material resources. What Jesus is, is seeking to do here is save the lost, because this man is lost. And, and answering the young man's questions and engaging this young man in conversation, you'll find what Jesus is, 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 is doing is exposing false assumptions, uncovering hidden idols that have this young man in thorough spiritual religious bondage. This man doesn't, doesn't know who Jesus is because he's, he hasn't, doesn't know who he is. He doesn't understand his need before a, a living God. And, and so Jesus here, once again, we're finding Jesus, uh, his intent is to, is to open the blind eyes, uh, to expose this man to himself so that this man can really see Jesus for who he is. And that's God's intent for us this morning as well. The context... It's not an accident that the story of the rich young ruler follows immediately after the story of Jesus and the little children. In all three Gospels where we have the rich young ruler story, it comes exactly in this order. Uh, It's very possible, it's likely, I could say, that this actually happened in chronological order. We know that's not always how the uh, Gospel writers um, structure their gospel story. Uh, they, they like to put things together that make specific points, but this very likely happened in chronological order. Jesus uh, is receiving these little children, and he's talking to them about, talking to the disciples, those who are gathered around, that it's necessary, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want to receive the kingdom of God, you need to do that as a little child. The word actually is a baby, not thinking a toddler here, a three-year-old, but an infant. And something then about Jesus' words, the young man most certainly was, was in the crowd listening, and, and, he, and he heard words that sparked his attention, uh, words about the kingdom of God and entering into it. And that was the very thing, it seems, that was on this, this man's mind, that was on his, his heart. He was concerned about these things. He wanted to know that he was, in fact, a saved man. He wanted assurance. He was certainly a good man in the eyes of everyone who knew him, and obviously in in his own eyes. But he doesn't really have assurance, which, of course, is if you you try to, um, if you're honest with with yourself, the law of God is is a poor source for assurance. And that's what he was looking to. But he's interested in these things. Is God pleased with me? Am I really a saved man? On that last day, will I be welcomed into the great banquet feast? Will will I be invited to sit down at the table of Abraham? Those are great, great questions. The most important question in your entire life is, (coughs) thank you, along those lines, are are you truly saved? When you die, as you certainly will, unless Christ returns first, Are you certain that you will be invited in? Do you know that Jesus will say to you, well done, enter into your eternal rest? It's the the single most important question in your entire life. 
And there's an urgency to it, and, and that urgency is reflected in this young man. In, in Mark's gospel, Mark uh, gives us a little more detail, that as Jesus was setting out on his journey, this young man ran up and knelt before him. Uh, note this young man doesn't come the way others had come to Jesus. Some had come to Jesus with false motives. We know that religious leaders particularly like to come to Jesus and ask him questions in trying to trap him. Questions about taxes and who's the, who, who's the king, who, uh, who should we honor. They're, they're, they're trying to trap him in, in things. But that's not how he comes. He, he doesn't have a, that desire to trap Jesus. Others came in fear, like Nicodemus, not wanting to be really identified. Nicodemus was a religious leader in the community. He had a reputation to maintain. Well, he didn't want to risk that, and so he came to Jesus by night. This young man doesn't do that. He comes honestly, openly. He runs to intersect Jesus as Jesus is beginning to leave, and, and he's a ruler. He's a leader. People know his name. He's a big shot. He has a reputation to maintain. And those, uh, the, the Pharisees who uh, had already set themselves against Jesus, they would frown on this. His, his friends, the, the, the well-to-do people in the city, would not look kindly on him uh, acknowledging Jesus as a good teacher, giving him that sort of public affirmation, and then kneeling before him in humility. These are things that um, you, you would not do this unless, unless there's an urgency. Unless you really, really felt you needed to meet Jesus and you needed to know something. I hope that you've done that some point in your life. I hope that, that you're willing to do it still, actually. I, I hope that uh, you're concerned enough about the things of God and you're concerned enough about the welfare of your own soul that you, you're able to move past your fear of what people will think. You're able to move past what your friends might say. You're able to move beyond just sort of the, the normal, acceptable form of religion, and, and there's an urgency in, in, in your life. There's a, there's a hunger. You need to know some things. You, you need to, to find out some things, and, and you're willing to publicly run after Jesus. I hope that's happening, because that's what we see here in the story. He, he's, he's just got to talk to Jesus. Time is wasting. Jesus is moving on, and, and he needs to ask a question. And so we find, secondly, the conversation. The man runs and kneels, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Greek helps us understand a little bit better the nature of the question. The, the man is, is saying, what is the thing that I must do, the doing of which will assure me that I have inherited eternal life. What is the thing that I must do, the doing of which will assure that I've inherited eternal life? He's a, he's a, a ruler, maybe a, the ruler of the synagogue. He knows the word, he knows the law, but, but what's the essential thing? Jesus seems to be a very wise spiritual man. What's the essential thing, the doing of which can give assurance that eternal life has been gained. Now, it would be easy for us as uh, 
as good Reformed critics to stand to the side and criticize. Right? We, could, we could say, silly man, you, you can't gain life by what you do. Here's this, here's this foolish man trying to gain his own salvation. Everybody knows you can't gain your own salvation. We could call him a legalist. We could quote Paul, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. We could do all that and we would be correct. This man is confused in his thinking. He does not understand what he's asking. He has the wrong categories. And it would be easy to criticize and to critique him, but notice that is not what Jesus do, what Jesus does. What, what does Jesus do? Jesus engages him. Jesus responds with a question of his own. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, again, that might seem an odd response. It might seem even a bit rude, but it's not. It's not a rebuke. It's an invitation. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge, an invitation for this man to reconsider his assumptions about who he's talking with. He clearly believes that Jesus is a good teacher. He's willing to publicly acknowledge that. He respects him as a man of God, possibly even a prophet. Undoubtedly, he's heard of miracles that people have said they saw Jesus perform. But you see, in the mind of this man, that's all Jesus is. He's a good teacher, a wise spiritual leader, a man who can be asked for information about serious spiritual and theological principles. But in that, you see, he completely misses Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't see Jesus. Because, you see, what, what, what's happening is he is kneeling before the creator of the universe. He is standing right in the presence of the one who knew him before he was born, the one who knit him together, the one who holds his life in his hand, the one who ordained every single one of his days and knows the, the secret thoughts of his minds and the hidden motivations of his heart, and he's standing in front of the living God and the only one who can rescue him from everlasting condemnation. That's who he's standing in front of, and he doesn't see it. Because, you see, he's looking for um, answers concerning eternal life, and, he, and he's, he's not realizing the answer is in front of him. He's looking for someone to point the way, someone to reveal the truth so that he can gain eternal life. And what he doesn't realize is that Jesus is the way and is the truth and is the life. He doesn't see Jesus. Churches are full of people like this who are willing to be instructed and pointed in the direction and and willing even for Jesus to, to help them gain eternal life, but who do not realize that Jesus is life and is the way. And so Jesus, you see, challenges this man. In his, in his religious framework, he, he doesn't see who Jesus is. <clears throat> so Jesus says, why do you call me good? You know, and this man does know, that no one is good but God. And it's not a picky little point. Jesus is saying, do you understand who you are talking to? Are you willing to connect the dots? Are you willing to believe that the one you're talking to is actually God? But he doesn't see it. Think about how close this man is to salvation. 
but he doesn't see it. Why not? Because, because he has, does not have the ability, he does not have the categories where Jesus as he is, is necessary or makes sense. All in his worldview, in his religious worldview, all he needs is some direction. He doesn't need salvation. He'd be offended at that thought. So what Jesus does is goes to work to open this, this man's eyes. He reminds him of the law of God. You know the commandments, which he does. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Jesus lists five of the, of the six commandments in the second table of the law. If you remember, the, the ten commandments are broken into uh, commands concerning love for God, first four commands, and then love for neighbor, the final six commands. And Jesus names numbers five through nine, not in order, but that's the commandments he lists, five through nine. And he says, you know, this is the law of God. Um, just do that. Just do that. And, but, but do it perfectly. Because that's what the, the, the scriptures require. That, that, that life can be attained if you keep the law of God perfectly. So Jesus says, just do that. And the young man says, yeah, <clears throat> done all that. I mean, it, it, it really is humorous at, at one level. Here's, here is this young man standing in front of the lawgiver. The, the law Jesus quotes is the law Jesus gave. He gave it to Moses. And, and uh, so the lawgiver says to this young man, just do the law. And this man says, you see, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now he's not, he doesn't mean to brag. I don't think he's just being pompous. I think he, he's sincere. You could have asked this man on the point of death, have you ever violated these five commands? And he would say, no. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never murdered anybody. Exactly, you see, the way people do so today. They'll, they'll say, I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't... I've never, I've never slept with someone else's wife. I don't steal things. I've never murdered anyone. And they're serious. They're, and it's, right, on one level it's true. They haven't. But, but on another level, we, we know fundamentally it's not true. The seventh commandment isn't just about your neighbor's wife. It's about your eyes and your mind and your secret sexual fantasies about what you wish you could do if you could get away with it. Your failure to honor the marriage bed as God commands, even as you're, if you're single or married. And we know that all the commands are like that, that they, anger, um, murder doesn't just, isn't just about taking a life, it's about, it's about anger and, 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 and hatred and self-justifying contempt and scorn and impatience with people. We know these things because Jesus has taught us these things. So we know that he's not telling the truth when he says, I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus knows he's not telling the truth. And we know he's not telling the truth. But you see, Jesus wants him to know he's not telling the truth. Jesus did not come to 
shame, and rebuke the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. You see, Jesus doesn't stand there and say, oh, come on. You know that's not true. Have you done do-do-do-do-do? Jesus doesn't do that. He just applies the law. Okay, you've, you've, you've kept the law. Okay, let's, let's apply it. And he does so in a way that reveals this man's fundamental failure. So when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. I love that response. Because the man's ears must have just perked up. He's come asking this very thing. What is the one thing, the thing that, do, the doing of which will assure me of eternal life. And so Jesus now gives it to him. One thing you still lack. How, how he must have anticipated. What is Jesus going to say? His eyes maybe went wide. His heart is beating. What is it? What's the one thing? And Jesus says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and, and come and follow me. And the the, the ceiling just collapses on this man's life. What an incredible command. And, and I'm sure there was nothing in Jesus' eyes, his tone, his voice, that gave the man any reason to doubt that Jesus meant exactly what he said. He's, it's not a metaphor. He's not speaking figuratively. He, he actually means... Go put everything you own on Craigslist and give the money to Mel Trotter and then come and follow me. That's what he means. It's an incredible command. Why? Because Jesus wants this man to see that the one thing he lacks is the one thing the law requires, and that's love. This is not another self-salvation project. The man would not be saved by just being more generous. That's not the point. He's not outlining another way to gain the kingdom of God. What he's doing, you see, is exposing the truth about this man to this man. Because the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man has done neither. He loves his money. He loves his money. He likes what it does. He likes the comfort of it. He likes the security of it. He likes the identity that it provides. He likes the place it gives him in the community. He likes the reputation that comes to wealthy Jewish men as men who are assumed by everyone in the community to be particularly favored by God. He likes that reputation. It might be the reason he's the ruler of the synagogue. He does not love the Lord is God with all his heart and soul and strength, and he does not love his neighbor as himself. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus goes at this the way he does. Notice that he used, Jesus uses um, five commands, initially, five commands that all are, in some sense, external commands. Things that you do or don't do externally. But but he didn't mention the 10th commandment. Did you notice that? Jesus mentions 5 through 9. He does not mention 10. He doesn't mention thou shalt not covet. Which is explicitly related to the first. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment, the 10th commandment, is, is one that doesn't deal with external uh, acts. 
but with internal motives. What do you love? What do you hunger for? What do you desire? What do you need? And the man that you see is exposed. It's fascinating that Paul, in Romans chapter 7, <coughs> when he's about what the law did in his life, he uses the exact same commandment. Paul says, Romans 7, if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The 10th commandment, you see, gets to the desires of your heart. What do you love? What do you live for? What do you want? What do you need? And when Jesus applied the coveting command, the man was devastated. He was devastated. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And the, and the word very sad means the roof had caved in, and he knew it. He, 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 he lost so much there. He, because you see, he was extremely rich, and with the thought of giving away what he loved and what he needed, what he trusted in, was, was overwhelming. It was too much. How do you know, friend, when something in your life has become an idol? Well, one way you know is when you're unwilling to let it go for Christ's sake or, or to love your neighbor. You're unwilling to let go of your time, unwilling to let go of your resources, unwilling to let go of your family, your money, your nice, comfortable life, your fantasies, your occasional indiscretions. That when push comes to shove and the actual moment arrives for you to make a decision to sacrifice something for Christ or hold on to it for yourself, the idol says, don't let it go. Don't let me go. Don't, don't take that step. That's too far. That's too much. You should not be required to have to give me up. You have a right to me. That's an idol. And this man just met his idol. I think he also went away because he, brokenhearted, because he saw himself. He, he, he lost, you see, something really important to him. He lost his, his identity as a good man. This had happened there in public, and, but, but, but as a sincere man, it happened in his own world. He, he, he was very convinced he was a good man. He was a, he was a godly man even. But Jesus, in, in pressing the law of coveting, now exposes him as just another normal money grubber, just another self-centered, self-interested person. He's devastated. He's exposed. Why does Jesus do this? Because he loved him. Jesus loved him. We know that uh, from the other text, from Mark particularly, Jesus looking at him loved him. Isn't that amazing? So here's this, here's this man. He, he's standing in front of Jesus who's given him all of his wealth. And he stands there in front of Jesus. And when Jesus asks him to, to let go of the wealth and hold on to him, come and follow me, he, he finds that he actually loves the gift far more than he loves Jesus the giver, and he turns away from Jesus, and yet Jesus loves him. Parents, just think about doing this with a child, where you give some wonderful gift, and then you ask maybe for just a little time to 
talk and they say thanks, but no thanks. And they love their gift and they despise the giver and they walk away. Love is not going to be the emotion you feel. But Jesus loves this man. And you see, Jesus loving him is pursuing him. Until this man sees his lack of righteousness, he will not be able to see Jesus. Because Jesus has is the Savior who came for sinners. Jesus is the, the atoning sacrifice for sinners. There are so many people in the church, and, and we all do this. I've done this. I do it. Feverishly working on your reputation as a godly person. And, and we do it internally. We do it externally. Not realizing, you see, that it, it's very possible that it, it, it's precisely your resume that's keeping you from seeing Jesus. That's why Martin Luther says it is not your, your sins that will, will condemn you. It's your damnable good works that will condemn you. It's your eagerness to build your own righteousness that keeps you from seeing that Jesus alone can be your righteousness. Where is Jesus going when he leaves as, he, as, as he's walking away? As, as Mark says, he turned to go on his journey. Do you know where he's going? He's, he's going to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die for sinners. And what Jesus wants this man to see, what he wants us to see is that's the Jesus that we need to know. The gospel, you see, comes to expose us as idolaters, to show us the one thing that we lack. You see, the, the one thing we lack is, is love. How well do you love people? How much do you love God? Truly in your heart. And when the law stands here and says, you shall do it with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And that's the law of God and that law stands. It will not pass away. And then there's you. How well do you love? Not just are you keeping your nose clean. How well do you love? See, and, and that exposes us, but that also allows us to see Jesus. I had a conversation with someone just recently who devastated by the discovery of, of sin in their life that they never thought would be there. And I don't know how many conversations I've had with people to say, I'm so thankful that that's happened to you. Because you can finally see Jesus for who he is. Jesus, without that happening, without you seeing yourself and being exposed to yourself, he would just be a moral teacher. He would just be a religious leader. Someone who you believe is the son of God, but you, in, in, in your mind, in your assumptions, you think that Jesus came to, to try to help you be a better person. It's not why he came. And until you... Face come face to face with the depravity of your own heart and the unrighteousness that exists within you. You'll never find Jesus for who he actually is. You'll never love him for who he is. As the one who saw you ruined in the fall and loved you notwithstanding all. It is precisely as you were desiring the gift and despising the giver that Jesus approached you and saw you and loved you and went to die for you. And the way that you then become a new person is by coming to Jesus and coming then as a little child. How do little babies come to Jesus? Well, the idea is, is a, little, a, little a little baby is, is the perfect human illustration of helplessness, of need, dependency. They don't bring anything except their mess and their need. It's all they got to give. And Jesus says, come then that way today. Come to Jesus that way this morning.
Come to the table of the Lord, not with promises, not with intentions. Come with nothing but your need, your helplessness, your utter dependence. That you need this Jesus as a savior. You need this Jesus to be your righteousness. And Jesus promises that when you come in this way, you will have the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow together in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, we, we cling hard to our idols. We cling to our self-righteousness. And we wonder why we don't love Jesus more and why we get so frustrated with people. We confess our sin. Jesus, meet us at the table today and I pray that as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we would see you, the Son of God, who knows us and yet loves us and loved us enough to die in our place and give us his righteousness and give us himself so that in Jesus we have the way and the truth and the life. Lord, do that work this morning around your table. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward. While the elders are coming forward, Linda, I'm going to just swap. So we're going to read the scripture during the distribution of the wine, and we'll sing uh, dur during the distribution of the wine. We'll read the scripture during the bread first. Okay, thanks, Linda. Jesus Christ has commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's a sacrament. It's a means of grace. As we uh, take this tangible bread... We meet a tangible Jesus and a tangible righteousness. Uh, we, we see the real need that we have in, in, in visible form uh, as Jesus calls us to remember who he actually is and what he actually came to do. He came to give his life, to allow his body to be broken so that you, the sinner, could be forgiven and pardoned and all the grace and favor of God poured out upon you forever and ever and ever, not because of anything in you, but because of Jesus Christ. And, and this morning, Jesus then calls you to, to remember and to believe these things, to take this gospel that you've heard a thousand times and once again receive it like a little baby, as a helpless, needy person, that the one thing you need more than everything else in your world, you need this Jesus. You need this sacrifice, and that this sacrifice is for you, the sinner, no matter what you've done, no matter how deeply uh, steeped in sin you might be, no matter what shame there might linger from, from a past sin, uh, no matter what trials you're facing and temptations you know are, are on the way this week, this Jesus promises to be a Savior for you. And all you need to do is remember and believe the body of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ given for you, the sinner. Isn't that good news? And so this morning, um, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as Jesus has commanded us, uh, the way to honor Jesus this morning is not by making promises. The way to honor Jesus is to receive the gift. 
On the night in which she was betrayed, Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the bread is being distributed, I want to encourage you to hold on to it so that we can all eat together. Uh, we want to invite you to the table of the Lord this morning. If you are um, a member of a Bible-believing church, we believe that Jesus Christ gives his sacraments to the body, the church of Jesus Christ, under the oversight of his, of his elders. If you're not a member this morning, uh, but you would like to be, please come and talk with me. Um, if you have... Um, yeah, any questions about that at all, please come and talk to me. But if, you are, if you're visiting with us this morning uh, and you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to Jesus' table. It's not ours, it's his. And we'd also be asking that you not be living in unrepentant sin, that you don't uh, continue in your uh, unrepentance, but that maybe even today you would uh, just pray to the Lord Jesus and turn again to him. Come and follow him. As the bread is being distributed, I'm going to read... From John 19, just a reminder of the crucifixion of what Jesus Christ endured in our place and for our sake. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see who it shall be. 
So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put the sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus Christ gave his life to rescue you, the sinner, and give you everlasting life. Take, sorry, thank you. Take, remember, and believe Jesus Christ offered up on a cross, complete sacrifice for all your sin. Jesus Christ also took the cup, and after having given thanks, he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sin. Remind you, the wine is in the inside rings, the grape juice on the outside ring, and we're going to sing together our confession, All I Have is Christ.
how loving of our Lord Jesus to give us such a tangible evidence and assurance of his promises to us. No matter what the world and the flesh and the devil might say about you, truth is what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus says, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. Jesus says, if you trust in me, you shall have everlasting life. And so as you drink, remember and believe all the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ, all secured by his sacrifice. God in heaven, we've we've touched this morning the most important essential thing about our life, and that is Jesus and our relationship with him. And Father, I pray that Today would be a great encouragement to those who are struggling with sin and guilt and shame that Jesus Christ came for them. And Lord, for those who are in bondage to self-righteousness, I pray that you'd break through and may we see Jesus afresh as we discover our profound need for him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your cross you humble us and you exalt us as, as we find that in Jesus we really do have life, everlasting life. We are new creations, and Lord, help us now to live as a new creation with humility, with gladness, with joy, with peace, and with love, all by your power, all through the cross, all by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and all for your praise. And God's people said, amen. A benevolent offering will be received uh, at this time as we take an offering to bless those uh, who are in need, and so the deacons will come and receive uh, that offering.